Today's commuter highlights from First Church is slightly different in that it's not a Sunday service or a lunchtime reflective service, but rather there was a book launch in First Church on the 5th of November. Uh, Lord Alderdice, John Alderdice, had written a foreword to a book by J.E. Davey called Religious Experience, and he was interviewed by the broadcaster William Crawley about the book and about J.E. Davey's life. Now, I have tweaked the audio a wee bit so that hopefully it's most of it is, is um, audible, but there are parts of it where there were questions from the audience that the microphone just didn't pick up, so you'll have to excuse those uh, little sort of breaks in, in audio quality. If you would like to contribute to the work of First Church, then you can go to our website, www.firstchurchbelfast.org, and click on the Donate button. Anything that you give will be most gratefully received. So here is the audio of the book launch. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to First Presbyterian Church Belfast as we launch Principal Davies' book, Religious Experience, Its Nature, Validity, Forms and Problems. We live in strange times, in an age of post-Trump and post-Dominic Cummings. Distraction, gaslighting and misinformation are commonplace. And for most people, that can be very unsettling. From the surety of modernity, we have transitioned into the uncertainty of a postmodern world. A world where demonstrable facts are now considered synonymous with ideology, opinion and belief. What we need is certainty. Certainty within politics, economics, science and every area that has an impact on our society. Though maybe not every area. Within religion, certainty is also something that is sought out by some people. You might see bumper stickers in the US declaring God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Keep your eyes open because they're on their way here, and some of them have already arrived. But while churches that are certain in their faith and doctrine are growing in some parts of the world, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing. In religion, certainty can be the mother of theocracy. And that's why we are delighted to facilitate the launch of a book that celebrates an unfolding revelation of God and of religion. And while that might seem like a frightening idea to some people, I believe that is where our hope for faith, Christianity and religion generally lies. Maybe in religion, uncertainty can be the mother of curiosity and discovery. So again, let me welcome you all to First Church, the oldest in-use place of worship here in Belfast, been open every Sunday bar COVID since 1783, and we're open this Sunday just in case you're passing by. It's a place where questions about faith are not shunned, but rather they are actively encouraged. So after that very blatant plug for this church, may I, and before I invite Lord Alderdice to come up to the lectern, can I just uh, plug another event that's happening here in First Church on the 17th of November? It's a book that has been published by the Presbyterian Historical Society of Ireland, uh, and it's authored by the Reverend Dr. David Steers 
of the non-subscribing Presbyterian Church in Ireland. It's a book about the Reverend Samuel Halliday, who was a minister of this very congregation. So if you're about on the 7th, 17th of November at 7 p.m., uh, please come along. It's a free event. You have to register, as you have to do with a lot of these things these days. Uh, but you'll, uh, somebody will be out in the vestibule, I'm sure, um, waving their arms about and flashing a, a poster of this. So make contact with them, uh, and they'll, they'll give you a bit more information. Now I would invite uh, Lord Alderdice to come up. Simon, Reverend Simon Henning, thank you very much indeed. And thank you to uh, my friends and uh, colleagues here in First Belfast Presbyterian Church. Thanks to Des McKeown and to the committee for agreeing to allow us to have this book launch here. Uh, although uh, Joan and I now live in Oxfordshire, uh, I joined First Belfast here um, before I left. Uh, as some of you know, I, I was previously a member of the Presbyterian Church of Ireland, but uh, I left and I joined here. And I've maintained my membership here. There have been many, many downsides of COVID. But one of the upsides is the fact that we've been using Zoom and, uh, and all of these kinds of facilities. And that's made it possible for me to join in services here and even from time to time to participate in them, even though I'm usually over on the other side of the water. So we make the best of even the difficult times. And I'm delighted to see that uh, you've made the best of it by joining us here this evening. Now, the book, uh, Religious Experience, um, I, we're going to talk quite a lot about that uh, this evening. And I'm really delighted and honoured that William Crawley is here with me this evening and we're going to have a conversation about that. But one of the important elements of the book is pointing up to us the significance of experience as distinct from simply thinking cerebrally and cognitively about things. And so to start off, we're going to have some experience, which I think all of us would associate with religious experience. Uh, Matt Greer is here with us this evening at the organ. And I've asked him to play for the next 10 or 15 minutes to us. Why? Well, first of all, to get a sense of religious experience, although in truth, it's a much, much broader thing than that. Secondly, James Ernest Davy himself was a very accomplished musician and organist. And every evening, so his daughter Joy tells us, she passed away some time ago, but left a little diary, which I, I read through. He would play to relax. He would play for enjoyment. And he would play some of the instrumentals that Matt is going to play to us now. He was not only an accomplished organist, but he also knew a lot about the organ. So when churches uh, were having a new organ put in or when they had a problem with the organ, they would ask J. Ernest Davy to come, not to tell them about the theology of it, but to help them with their choice of organ or their resolution of the problem. So the whole idea of experiencing organ music is a route into getting a sense of what Davy was about. And I'm very grateful indeed to, to Matt for coming and doing that. The books, we have copies of them at the back if you wish to purchase uh, any of them. The hardbacks 
are, and this is a real uh, bit of sales talk here, the hardbacks are usually £16.99, uh, but tonight they're only £15, and the paperbacks are usually £11.99, but they're a giveaway at £10, uh, and uh, Natasha and Ava will help us with those at the back. And, and can I also thank Ava uh, uh, in particular for the huge amount of work she has done uh, on publicity for the event, and Natasha, who has also come to help us. You'll also notice little cards uh, uh, that you've either been handed or are in the pews. If you don't have one, pick one up on the way out. It says on it, the J. Ernest Davies Society. And what that really is about is finding a way of keeping in touch those of us who want to see a more positive, progressive view of what Presbyterianism and Reformed faith can bring. So if you'd like to take one of those, there is a website, there are email addresses, and we can stay in touch on that front afterwards. But now I turn to Matt and invite him to bring us the organ music.
Well, it's not for nothing that the organ is described as the king of instruments. And Matt has been demonstrating that to us this evening. Would you please show your appreciation? One guy that absolutely does not need any introduction either to this place or to any of you is William Crawley. William, I'm delighted that we're going to be doing this together this evening. Thank you very much, John. Can you hear us okay? Oh, that's great. I know so many people in this room. This is wonderful. Um, Can I be biographical uh, to begin with? Um, I am one of those strange people, though I'm a journalist for a living, who actually watches the BBC Parliament channel. And uh, one day I was watching the Parliament channel, uh, it was my want, and I watched John giving a speech and I disagreed with him. And uh, so in my personal non-journalistic capacity, wrote him an email in detail, explaining where he was wrong in this speech. And uh, he invited me to his home and we spent most of the day together in the kitchen talking, drinking coffee and becoming very good friends straight away. I think Ernest Davy might appreciate this actually, friendship that is born uh, in disagreement, in the dialectic of two different positions that need not be threatened by the difference but actually enjoy the difference. And I, I really appreciate uh, what John has done in bringing us this book in 2010 I interviewed him on the Sunday Sequence program when he wrote a, a piece, an article, um, published in a, in a book on psychology and conflict, and he looked at the psychological dimensions of fundamentalism, which again connects with J. Ernest Davies' story. And the connection with me is quite deep because when I was 18 years old and a first year student at Queen's University, I loved, even at that point in my life, my life, I loved courtroom dramas. I loved 12 Angry Men. I loved the movie Inherit the Wind, you know, based on the Scopes Monkey Trial, the teacher facing the opposition of uh, fundamentalists against his teachings of Darwin. And one day I was pottering about the bookstore near Queen's and I happened across this really dusty, old, tan-coloured book which was the trial record of J. Ernest Davies' trials at the Belfast Presbytery and the appeal of the General Assembly. I read it all the way through, and, and it, it, I read it kind of thinking of Henry Fonda and uh, Spencer Tracy, you know, one man against the system. Hello, David Ford, how are you doing? <laughs> 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 there are probably a number of people here in the room who feel some of that, of, of that, you know, where you are standing for what you believe and you feel the oppression of others who are not prepared to allow you to speak and, in the language of today, try to cancel you. And I, 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 this is an early example, of, again, isn't it, of an attempted cancellation in 1927 when J. Ernest Davy was tried for heresy on, on five of five charges. I subsequently read the biography by Austin Fulton, which is this sort of red colored book, and it's very sort of anonymous looking, but it's kind of fascinating to get the story behind the trial. So it is amazing to me personally um, that I, I made this journey myself. I then subsequently started up a paper reading group for other students at the university. We run that kind of undergraduate, I'm afraid. And John Barclay, the professor of church history at Queen's, who was a personal friend of J. Ernest Davies, 
came along one night at my invitation. I asked him to give a paper about J. Ernest Davy and, and tell us more about him. Had that experience of talking to people who, who knew him. And not so very long ago, uh, I, I read a PhD thesis by, by someone in Manchester University just in the last four years uh, about J. Ernest Davy and this trial and, and his theology and the impact. So people are still interested in all of this, and yet somehow I never expected that 61 years after J. Ernest Davy's death, he would be bringing out another book. <laughs> and it is this book uh, with the, the foreword by Lord Alderdice, and I want to find out more about, first of all, how this came about, and then let's all talk together about this remarkable life. John, how, where did you find it? I, I really thought after the trial, J. Ernest Davy didn't write very much more because of the psychological impact, I imagine the traumatic impact of that trial in his life. I didn't even know that there was this manuscript waiting to be discovered. How did you find it? Well, you're quite right. You, you referred back to that book chapter that I wrote in 2010. It was a textbook. I was yeah. asked to write the chapter on it's a textbook on religion and psychiatry. And I had been asked to write a chapter on, on the psychology of religious fundamentalism. Mm. Uh, and this was, you know, after 9-11, so really people were thinking about Islamic fundamentalism. But I thought, look, I lived in Bellamina. I know what fundamentalism <laughs> is. I, I can smell it a mile away. And I thought, yes, because I'd read that Austin Fulton biography of, of, of Davy, and I was very interested in him. But I got involved in the political stuff and so on and so on. But I thought, no, I need to go back and, and read that. And so what I did then was I read, I read that and I read various other things. I read uh, Our Faith in God Through Jesus Christ, which was his lectures in uh, just before 1921, and then The Changing Vesture of the Faith, which were the Kerry lectures exactly a century ago, mm. 1921. Mm. Published the book in 1923, led to the heresy trial. But reading it, I was absolutely stunned. Here was this young guy, son of the Presbyterian Mounts, been to Cambridge, been to Edinburgh, comes back and writes a book in the very early days of psychoanalysis clearly absolutely understanding the principles of psychoanalysis but applying them to the development of a whole society theology church religious mm. i thought this is just absolutely amazing and so i followed it up and i had exactly the same question as you because you've got this first book then you have got changing vesture of the faith and then after that there's a few bits of history books and a biography as father charles david he's an evangelist mm. And then the only other thing really of any substance is in 1958, a couple of years before he dies, there's a monograph on the Gospel of St. John. But it was mostly stuff that he'd written in 1927, 28. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I just cannot believe that this man, described as the brightest thinker the Presbyterian Church in Ireland ever produced, stopped thinking after the heresy trial. Mm. Like you, I, I thought... It's clear. He was terrified. He didn't want to go through all of this again. He had two choices. Either leave and go to Scotland or somewhere else, uh, maybe Germany where he'd been in, in, in Heidelberg, or to stay and just be incredibly careful. And I couldn't believe it. I thought there must be some lecture notes that he wrote extra bits on or some papers from somewhere or other. And so I started looking around. And eventually I, I came across a, 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 someone called Paul Gilmer, who subsequently became a great friend, who was a friend of the Davy family 
who helped uh, to, uh, he was an executor of, of David's daughter's will. And Paul and I met and we talked about things and I explained to him, I thought, there must be some way, Paul, we could find something. He says, well, actually, there is a manuscript. And I said, where is it? Why didn't you tell anybody Where is it? <laughs> and, uh, and so he got me this manuscript, which was typed up. You remember the old hand typewriters and you could actually see the, the kind of threads of the yeah. typewriter ribbon through it? Well, that was the problem because when it came to digitizing it in order to print it, yeah. Um, it wouldn't digitise. So I basically had to go through and almost type the whole thing out again uh, to make it ready for, for, uh, for publication. <laughs> and uh, what fascinated me, as soon as I read the manuscript, I realised why it hadn't been published. He died in 1960. You had the rise of fundamentalism in the guise of Ian Paisley and others. And so people like Jimmy Hare and other colleagues didn't want, they thought this is too incendiary. You know, this is going to create all sorts of problems all over again. So they printed a few chapters for private circulation only, but they did not publish it and they did not even print the whole book. Hmm. And, and then, as you say, it kind of disappeared hmm. and most of the people didn't know there had been anything at all. And yet, when you come to the end of it, he says very clearly, this is my valedictory note. This is what, after a lifetime of work in theology, I believe religion and religious experience is about. And I thought, right, we've got to get this into print. And we've got to get it into print, at least by the centenary of the Carey Lectures, which mm. uh, were in themselves, as you said, incendiary. So that's really how it comes about. And, and you're absolutely convinced that the manuscript you have was the fully complete manuscript he had finished with it. He, I mean, I think you've got Finnis written at the end. Yes. He wrote that in. He wrote that he, in. He's completely... He wrote that in. And, and as you go through the manuscript, there are a few places where he has added in little bits. Uh, he scribbled in a little bit or, or whatever. But yes, as you say, when it comes to the end, he says Phineas. And actually in publishing it, you, you'll, I mean, you're very familiar with all this kind of business, but the way that the references are written at the back, you would not write in a book today, no, you know? Yeah. And the language is a little bit, you know, 1950s yeah. kind of language. I was quite clear, I wanted to publish it as exactly as I possibly could what he himself wrote, uh, rather than, you know, play around with it. I wanted people to get what he thought. Had he been writing it today, you know, he would have used slightly different language course, and so on and so on. Yeah. Um, but but this, is, this is the material as it goes in the manuscript. Well, let's walk up to this book and we'll talk about it in more detail. But let's talk a bit more about J. Ernest Davy and a bit of his story and that, and that trial and some of the other books and his theological contributions. Um, tell us his beginnings and, and, and how he made it into the church. Well, he was, a, like myself, he was the son of the Presbyterian man in Ballymena. And his father, Charles Davy, was a great evangelist and was very well known and, and, and a great preacher. And he came up to Belfast then. Charles, the father, came up to Belfast. Uh, J. Ernest came up. Uh, he went to Campbell. Um, he took the prizes. And uh, he got a scholarship to, to Queen's, but he also got entrance to King's College, Cambridge. And surprise, surprise, he told, decided to go to Cambridge. Um, terrible betrayal of Queen's, but there we are. Um, and he went to, to King's uh, and he took all the prizes there. Uh, he went to Edinburgh. The comment by the examiner of his material was that he hadn't read anything as good as this in 30 years uh, in the theology faculty. He came back, he was a fellow of King's College, Cambridge for about six or seven years. And then he came back here uh, in uh, his twenties as the youngest ever professor at uh, Assemblies College as it was in those days. Came back, was ordained, 
And at that stage, as you rightly said, there was this emerging serious conflict mm -hmm. between liberalism and fundamentalism. And there were some attempts to get some of the more senior people in Assemblies College. And for various reasons, the people involved decided to back off. But here was this young guy coming in and immediately was coming out. He was doing lectures to, you know, Workers' Educational Association, lots of ordinary people. He didn't just stick in the, in the academic place. He went out and gave these lectures and then they were very popular. They were published. Whole series of his sermons were published. Mm. Not a lot of sermons these days are published for sale. You know, sometimes people would pay you to take their <laughs> sermons. In his case, it was quite different. Um, and, and they decided, we've got to get this guy. He's yeah. young. He's dangerous. Yeah. We've got to go for him. And so they did. What people forget very often is that he was acquitted with a huge majority. Mm. He was the, the Presbyterian Church and I decided he was not a heretic that these ideas were very interesting, they were worth exploring, and he continued on, he became the moderator of the Presbyterian Church, he was the prince of the theological college, but there were always those who resented the fact that the church had acquitted him, they didn't agree with him. They were right, they, they didn't have the same perspective as he had. Mm. But the church has two choices really. As a democratic church that says everyone has the right and responsibility to read the scriptures for themselves, you either will have disagreements mm. but stay together, or you'll have disagreements and you'll split. And the Presbyterian Church has done both of those things over the years. And I, I said a number of years ago, probably around about that time when we met to have our first long chat, that actually it was really important that the Presbyterians did have an argument, because if they didn't have an argument, then it was the peace of the graveyard. They, it was dead. So we need to have debates and arguments and discussions about these mm. things and disagree. And that's what happened with Jay Ernest. And in those days, they could hold it together. I'm not sure that that's the case now. Well, though there was a split away, of course. The Evangelical Presbyterian Church founded out of the exodus of those who brought the case against him. That's right. That's right. The Reverend James Hunter, he became known as Heresy Hunter because he was always on the lookout for it. And he, he took actions against a number of people, including J. Ernst Stephen. As you say, he was the minister of Knock Presbyterian Church. A very unusual man. So biography have, uh, has been published quite recently by Bill Adley. I'm not sure whether Bill is here or not, but uh, he published a, a book about, uh, about uh, James Hunter. A very interesting mm -hmm. character. Um, and actually, it's interesting that some of the disagreements between such liberals as there are left and, and, and more fundamentalist people actually was around even in not Presbyterian Church itself. Um, it's interesting that the 20s, of course, are very interesting, as you yes. say, about for the fundamentalism, uh, modernism dispute. Um, at one point in my life, I was assistant in uh, First Presbyterian Church in New York before I came back yes. to, to, to Ireland. And a very famous minister there, of course, Harry Emerson Fosdick, in 1922 preached a sermon called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And Rockefeller was a member of, of the congregation, and he had that sermon printed, 160,000 copies of it went across America, and it led to an, an, an enormous eruption, really, within American uh, religious life. So that's happening. The Scopes Monkey Trial, I mentioned the Inherit the Wind, I think that's happening as well in the United States. Some of those ideas are coming over here, particularly with evangelists yes. coming over and bringing those ideas here. And of course, J. Ernest Davey comes from an evangelical yeah. background. Uh, he, he, I understand, I think I recall reading that he 
uh, as a young man was part of the Children's Special Service Mission, the CSSM. Right. Was that in Portrush or Ballycastle yep. or somewhere like yep. that? I did that myself back in the day uh, in Ballycastle as well. So he comes from that background. Do you think that some of those who were opposed to him, like Hunter and, and, and Greer um, in the trial, were particularly irritated by the fact that he came from that background, that this was Charles Davies' offspring? I think, I think that probably did play some role, but I, I, th I think the main problem was the environs of the time, and one of the things I wrote about in that chapter on fundamentalism is that fundamentalism occurs in situations where communities feel under existential threat. Mm -hmm. And of course, in 1921, we've had all the centenaries, but you know, Ireland is divided, yeah. there are huge fears in the Protestant community, south and, and north. Um, and so people retreated into this fundamentalism. W.P. Nicholson, as you say, came back from, the, from America uh, with, with all of this very uh, strident even, uh, evangelical approach. Um, and indeed, the, the, some of the senior politicians came to him and said, now don't you be attacking the Catholics because, you know, this place is unstable. Mm. And he said, no, I, I won't. I'll stick with, with attacking the Plymouth Brethren for some reason. The Plymsy The Plymouths yeah. <laughs> and, and Liberals. And yeah. true to his yeah. word, that is what he did. And yeah. of course, then subsequently, much of the way he approached things was taken up by Ian Paisley. So, yes, I, I'm sure there was the kind of betrayal sense that mm. this son of, of the manse and, a, and son of an evangelist, turned, as it were. Um, but I think there was also a, a problem of the times and the context, and, and they couldn't really understand what he was trying to say. Because when you read through this book, it talks about things like conversion, mm -hmm. and it helps to explore the nature of conversion as not just a Christian thing, never mind just a, a Protestant yeah. thing, but as something that happens for people in all religious communities, when they are at a certain age and stage and mm. become persuaded by their experience. And those speeches he made, I mean, it's not, it's not the typical kind, of, we call it a trial, but I mean, it's a series of speeches really, isn't it? Um, they are infused with a kind of uh, evangelical passion. Yes. And maybe that was part of the difficulty of nailing him down as well, because he sounded so preachable. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that the book is really about is, it, it, and Changing Vesture of the Faith is even clearer about this, is that things that we associate with religion, like doctrines and even creeds, uh, rituals, church structures, sources of authority, he says, all of those are passing things. Yeah. Those come and go and change. But experience, the passion you describe, the feelings, mm. that is the authentic thing. That's what gives conviction is the feeling that emerges which is one of the reasons why it's during adolescence that you very often get conversion and, and it gives meaning and purpose to the whole thing and I think that was quite disturbing to many of the fundamentalists because here was this guy talking about things they knew and valued mm -hmm. but pointing in a somewhat different direction than the one they were pointing in. He was still rooted in the experiential which they were too. Yes but interpreting it in different ways. Absolutely. Uh, they, they brought five charges yep. against him. So we're, we're, we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the divinity of Christ, the infallibility, inerrancy of, actually the inerrancy of the Bible, because yes. he said, you're right, I, I, don't, I don't agree with the inerrancy yes. of the Bible, nor do I have to. So he pleaded on that one yep. and he got, he got that one through as well. Um, what else we got in there? He's got, um, um, imputation and forgiveness his understanding of that which it was not typically a calvinist kind of reading of these things 
it, do you think he got away with it or was he actually guilty? Well, you mentioned John Barclay. Because John Barclay said to me, you know, he, he was more of a heretic <laughs> than these guys ever realised. They just didn't have the intelligence to nail him down. That's what he said to me. Well, that was very typical of John, as you know very well. I was very fond of him, but he was a somewhat cynical <laughs> and, delight, and, del and delightful man. But no, I mean, I think there is some element of truth in it in the sense that... Um, if you can picture the trial, and you've given a, a delightful kind of picture of it, and you know, when it comes up to the centenary, I hope somebody does dramatise it and actually produce mm. a programme mm. because I, I think it would be it would be very dramatic. But here's this extraordinarily gracious man. Mm. Every criticism that is made of him, he responds to it with courtesy and mm. grace and takes it seriously. And these guys who are his accusers are pretty horrible people. You know. They, twist things, they tell things that aren't true, they attack. And, and I think a lot of the people who were sitting there didn't necessarily understand what was going on, but they thought, do I want to live in a church with this guy or with these people? And they thought, nah, that's not a hard one. Mm. And they decided, you know, th this was the kind of attitude mm -hmm. that they wanted. I, I think there is some truth that maybe it was, it, it was a bit beyond something. But I think too, the attitudes within the church then were very different from the attitudes that came subsequently. Sometimes it's, it's put out there that a lot of these fundamentalist attitudes are the truth as it always was before these guys took us all astray. And actually, I don't think that's the truth at all. I think that a lot of the attitudes hmm. that were around uh, in, amongst more, more liberally minded people were the authentic attitude. I mean, Christ was criticised for exactly the same reasons, by mm. the same kind of people. So I think what he was trying to do was authentic. Um, and and, and, and I, I get the sense people grasp that, even if they didn't necessarily understand all of the things he was saying and how he was, how he was putting them. The, the trial was covered every day in the Times yeah. newspaper. This was a cause celeb. This was a, a, a big deal. The last heresy trial in Ireland, though in 2000 and... Um, Two, I went down to Dublin because we thought there was going to be another one. Uh, do you remember the, the Dean of Clomac Noyce, <laughs> Andrew Furlong? Uh, and I went down and I was covering this and we actually, we weren't allowed to record it. So we brought a stenographer to capture the entire trial because I thought this is the first heresy trial since Ernest Davy. The Dean of Clomac Noyce is accused of being a heretic. The bishops are all lined up there. We go into the room, the stenographer's tapping away and we'd already hired actors to do what you want to do with Jairus Davy. We were going to dramatise our own trial for the radio. And, and then they settled on day one and it never got to a charge. He basically got a retirement deal and, and, and left the church. So this is still the last heresy trial in Ireland. It was also connected, I suppose, to the Robertson Smith trial in Scotland. He was a professor in, in, in the MWIT Cambridge, of course, wrote the entry on the Bible in the Encyclopedia Britannica. A very distinguished man, considered uh, the founder of the, the science of anthropology, wasn't he? A big influence on Freud, your yes. friend Freud, yep. John. Uh, Freud quotes him a lot, Robertson yep. Smith, and he was done for heresy as well. So this was all in the air. The modernists here, science was here. How do you read the Bible yep. in a way that makes sense of the scientific world that we're in? Right. Ernest Davies, part of all of that. But what he does, and this is where we need to come to this book, is to draw on the philosophy of Hegel. Yes. And I think this is probably what, to be fair to John Barclay, I think this is probably what he had in mind. 
if they had read any Hegel or could have understood Hegel, they would have realised that the charge was greater <laughs> than, than they could have hoped had they pursued it. Because Hegel, and you cannot understand Jairus Davian unless you understand his Hegelian turn, right? Yeah. And his approach to phenomenology and experience. Yes. So let's, let's talk about that. What does he do with Hegel in his approach to experience? Well, I think what he does is emphasise the central significance of experience. What he says is that you know, when you have some ideas or thoughts about things, uh, that's fine, that's mm -hmm. very good, but actually that doesn't give conviction. Nor is it a question of simply working through the argument. You may think, yeah. oh, well, yeah, that's, that's quite good. But when you begin to feel something about it passionately, mm. that turns it into something quite different and quite profound and it gives conviction to things mm. um, it's an interesting thing for example I, I, whenever I was training in psychoanalysis uh, my old analytic teacher used to say the thing about dreams is the person will think all sorts of things and it's quite difficult to work out what's really going on but he said the feeling is always accurate and genuine uh, so, so and it's a, in a sense it's the same kind of thing it's that's that's the, the, the lodestar, that's mm -hmm. the anchor. If you really want to know what's going on, that's it. It's the, it's the passionate kind of sense of things. And I think one of the other things about him, we've talked a lot about the past and what's come, and of course Hegel is kind of coming back into people's thinking again in the last little while. What's important to me about Davy is not, well, this was very interesting, this guy wrote these things 60 years ago and they came out of his thoughts of 100 years ago and so on, but rather... Mm that in the late 1950s when he wrote this, he's already referring to the kinds of thinking developments of, for example, Heisenberg, um, the uncertainty principle that, that you cannot be certain about everything in science, in physics, you cannot be certain about everything. And to me, as I read it now at this juncture, it seems to me very clear that he's pointing to what we now call complexity science. Mm -hmm where you, it, is, it is not just that you can't have certitude about, about certain kinds of things because you're inaccurate or you don't have the instruments yeah. to measure it or whatever. When you get to the fundamentals, either at the huge level of the metaverse yeah. or at the tiny, tiny below fundamental particles, you cannot have certitude about those sorts of things. And he, it seems to me, is, and this is why I think it's an exciting possibility for theology, because it's not a theology of the past, it's something that takes us forward, an evolving revelation uh, and a continuing reformation of our understanding. Well, you could understand why these guys were scared, can't you? Uh, because, you know, read the Bible, it's a compendium of truth, and your doctrines will fall out of its pages. And he's saying, no, you see, that's, that's not how this works. Um, and it's experiential and God is not even a being God is processive because to say that God is a being is to limit God and if God is infinite God can't be a being with characteristics like omniscience and omnipresence because that would be to limit God this is quite scary stuff yep. I'm sure in the 1930s 40s 50s it's pretty common in process theology these days of course and it's, it would lead others to think, is he actually arguing for pantheism, 
panentheism? Is he really a theist at all? Uh, is, is, I mean, where do you get that notion of truth? Can you feel your way to truth? I have a conviction. Well, serial killers can have convictions. Psychopaths can have convictions. Where's the truth in a conviction? How does he deal with any of that? But I think when he maps out the way our ideas change, and the way people, you know, some people will say that, you know, if the authorised version is good enough for St Paul, it's good enough for me. You know. But what the, the point is that when you read about people in the past, for example, yeah. saying they believed in heaven and hell, how did they think about that? They literally believed that heaven was up there yeah, yeah. and hell was down there. This was not, it was not an analogy, it was not a metaphor. It was actual physical reality, and, and they drew up pictures of what the universe was like that, that figured with that. When they thought about the body, they thought about it in a completely different way than we think about it now, having you know, opened it up, dissected it, explored it, and so on and so on. So the point is, even when people use the same language now yeah. that people used a thousand years ago, never mind, two thousand years ago, sure. it doesn't mean the same thing as was meant in those days. So there is no possibility of simply sticking with the old way of thinking because even... This is very postmodern, John. I'm sorry, Simon, but this is incredibly <laughs> postmodern. It's the abandonment of certitude. Yeah. It, I, I'm not, I'm not criticising it. <laughs> I'm not criticising it for that, by the way, but I'm saying, I mean, this, this is... This is post-foundationalist. It's the abandonment of those traditional notions of doctrinal certainty. Yeah. And it's a move to something completely different. Which is why I wonder, had they been better read in their Hegel if they could have got them convicted? Well, uh, somebody asked me uh, a few days ago, um, would he be taken to heresy trial now? And if so, would he be convicted? And, and I think the truth of it is, if he was taken to heresy trial in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland today, well, no. He certainly would be. No, they would get him out without a heresy trial. <laughs> well, <laughs> and therein is a whole, there, is a a whole other story. There's Absolutely. a paragraph of the code that just triggered it. Absolutely. But I'm not sure, when you say it's postmodern, actually I think postmodern is getting a bit dated. It is, yeah. And I think we're beyond that now into something that is actually much more substantial. I mentioned complexity science. Yeah. Complexity science is not mush. It is actually looking at the reality of things and saying, you know what, the reality is more complex than that simple way of looking at it. How do we understand that? For example, if you take some water mm -hmm. and you analyse it down, you get to H2O, right? Now you can analyse and understand everything that there is to know about hydrogen and everything there is to know about oxygen and it tells you nothing about water. You can have a molecule of water but it tells you nothing about wetness. Why is that? Because if you analyse things down, you lose complexity. You mm -hmm. lose structure, mm -hmm. information, data. And it's only when you bring those things together that you can actually understand things. And this is why we've moved beyond the science of people like Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, mm -hmm. all of whom were religious people, but all of whom wanted to take thinking forward with the conviction that, that the truth and the search for truth was not just a search in faith, it was also a search in knowledge. And Pope Francis, for example, talked about how faith and science are twins in the search for truth. And I think that's, that's the approach of Davy. It's not trying to find some kind of 
funny alternative or whatever. It is, it is saying, I really want to know the truth about this. Yeah. And the truth is complex. It's not How simple. do you determine the truth then for Davy? I, I think what he would say is you cannot determine it finally. It is a pilgrimage. It's a path. We mm -hmm. understand a little more. We understand a little more in conversation with others, in exploration, in study, in thinking, in the archaeology that reveals things to us about the All past. Right, so that let, we let me know. restate the question then. How do you know if you've taken a step even towards truth as opposed to away from it? In a way, I suppose you go back to the quotation of Gamaliel that if this is of God, it will prosper ultimately. And if it's not, it will fall away. Just that. If an idea hangs around long enough, it's from God? Not just that. There's also the question of authenticity and experience. If you tell me something and it doesn't impact on me, then I won't believe it. It may even mm -hmm. be true, but I won't believe it. I'm starting because to sound it like one of Davies prosecutors. I don't mean it to sound that way. I'm, I'm trying to interrogate <laughs> oh, you're the You're a idea. much nicer guy No, I'm that. just trying to interrogate the ideas. I'm not trying to convict them. Of, just be clear about that. But the, these, I, I, I can fully understand yeah. why those who had a completely different construction of religion yeah. would find this deeply threatening. I mean, for example, in the Changing Vesture of the Faith, he says, what you say about science and its constant updating, that's true of religion too. Yes. And it always has been. Yeah. That, that would have been very frightening for people who say, you know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever and, and the doctrines don't change and Davy says go look at the history of the church they've always changed and not only that and they've but been politicized to change over time and, yeah. and if you look at what Jesus himself says for example yeah. to the woman at the well the Samaritan woman and she's trying to argue well you know your people say we should worship here my people say we should worship there and Jesus takes steps right out beyond that he doesn't argue about whether it's better to pray here or there he says God is, is spirit, not a spirit. God is spirit. Mm. And those that worship him will worship him in spirit. It's not a question of where you are. That was absolutely as radical and continues to be as radical. Because if you think about that, that is doing exactly the same thing as David did. It is saying that things like mm. particular doctrinal understandings or human understandings of the transcendent, particular ways of worshipping may be helpful, but they may also be something that we go beyond and the structures of authority. You've already referred to how they can turn into something quite unpleasant. They can, and, yeah. And we need to move beyond that. So this is not something that is being unfaithful to what Jesus Christ said. On the contrary, Jesus, who was himself the radical, who, by the way, ended up not in a heresy trial, but on a cross because of it. That that is what he believes himself to be following. And, and I, I think he was trying to follow that. Austin Fulton, in his book, describes, in one of the chapter headings, describes Davy as a conservative radical, mm. which I think is a very, it's obviously an oxymoron, but I, I think it's a very good description of Davy because I think he was a frightened man. I think he sat on the fence a lot of the time for the reasons you have described, because of the culture around him, and he felt frightened to actually expatiate on these ideas. Maybe he was worried about where they might take him to. Well, it's, it's a very interesting postmodern business uh, uh, <laughs> describing as a conservative radical. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, there's something actually more to it than that. Yes, I agree with you. I think I mean, he had all sorts of anxieties, quite hypochondriacal. Mm. One of the things that they discovered whenever they got all his papers and so on out was these bills to the, to the chemist's shop. He would be always... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Health but, paranoia, but, please. But, it yeah, sounds better <laughs> that way. <laughs> but I think there's something very important about yeah. that. 
and that is that he did not simply follow the newest thinking and let go of the roots from which he had come. Yeah. He valued those and said, now wait a minute, let's, let's take a step out here, but let's not take my foot off the previous stepping stone. Mm. Because there is actually something important there that should not be lost. And I think that's one of the problems for many liberals, is that in trying to move forward, they abandon some things as primitive, backward and so on, which are not. They are of the essence mm. of humanity and our relationship with God and with each other and with the universe in which he has placed us. So, so I think there are liberals who abandon that and lose something of enormous foundational value. And I think he wasn't prepared to do that. So I think you're right, there was the neurotic side to it, if you like, the anxiety, the fear of getting... But there was also something much more valuable than that, and that was the recognition that there was something in this conservative background that he yeah. came from that should not be abandoned or lost. I wonder about these four chairs that he held at different points in his life. You know, interestingly, never the systematic theology yeah. chair, but yeah. church history and biblical studies and stuff like that. I mean, if you saw someone with a CV like that today, you'd think there's something odd there. Someone's sort of, why are you not settled in your academic pursuit and becoming a lifelong specialist in this one? Well, how do you jump from being a professor of church history to New Testament and then Old Testament yeah. and things like that? How do you jump around like that? Yeah. I, I know a lot of people see this as an example of the spaciousness of Ernest Davies' mind. I have to say I don't. I see it as an, as an example, or as an illustration of the smallness of the college he worked in where you had to move around and teach a lot of things, and the fact that he seemed to intellectually jump about a lot rather than determinately pursue a particular path. Am I wrong about that? I think there's two things I would say about it. The first is that for quite a long time there's been an increasing specialisation in academic understanding and knowledge. Mm -hmm. People have been you know, ca caricatured as knowing more and more about less and less sure. until they know everything about nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of truth in that. In fact, what's now become clear um, is that we are never going to solve any of the important problems, not just the theoretical ones, yeah, but the practical yeah. ones, by operating out of academic silos. And in fact, the biggest grant that Oxford University has ever received was from James Martin, who came out of Oxford, did computer studies, and came back and said, look, I want to give you this huge grant, something like 80 million pounds, mm. to set up a centre which will only fund people who are working across the disciplines. Because we're never going to solve these major problems by getting into the weeds of the individual thing. And I think that that was part of, of, of his approach, was not getting tied into the, the super specialisation that's failed to understand the big picture. But you're absolutely right. It is fascinating that the one thing he didn't go into was systematic theology. And I think he just didn't, he wasn't the slightest bit interested. He thought this was nonsense, really. And yet it's the thing that people talk about. Yes. It's what we're talking about. Well, it, well it, it's, it's part of what and we're talking about. he didn't even address the contemporary theologians no. of, of his day, like Karl Barth. No. He never got into any of that. No, abs absolutely. But you see, I think, I think some of it was um, that he, he felt... Well, you know, Jesus never left a systematic theology <laughs> at all. Wow. On the contrary, what did Jesus did was he told stories. Right. And, and, and these stories, emblem, and some of them contradicted each other, yeah. but they, they showed something about real life.
Yeah, and so. systematic theology, to some extent, actually takes us away from real life. Well, Jesus that, didn't leave a philosophy of experience either, but Ernest Davy did. I'm not so sure. I think he very much described a way of being in the world, as the phenomenologists would describe it, a way of being in the world which was radical and which was the gospel. Uh, and I think that that was what Davy was also trying, not so much to get back to, but to move forward to in the world in which he lived. This is my most critical question, John, and then we're going to go to the audience. Uh, would we be talking about J. Ernest Davy at all today if he didn't have a heresy trial in 1927? It's a good question, and, I, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that, because had there not been a heresy trial, it could be that he simply would have been ignored mm -hmm. and, 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 and time would have just moved on. Or it could have been that many people wouldn't have been frightened by the kind of thinking he was describing and would have followed that on and there would have been a completely different trajectory yeah. for Presbyterianism in this island. So I, I, don't, I can't give you the answer for how it would have been if. What I think I can say for certain is that there were some really important ideas here mm. which are important for us now as well as then. And I hope that within Presbyterianism, we can have some real debate and struggle with these questions, because that would mean that Presbyterian Christianity was alive. The peace of the graveyard is the one where there is no disagreement and debate. It may mean splits, it may not. But the important thing, as he would have said, is the life. Mm -hmm. And that is not around where people don't disagree. I'll squeeze one more question in before I come to the audience, because this is what I was having. Um, you're really taken by this guy, aren't you? Yes. Um, and you have been for quite a long time. Yes. Why? I mean, let, let me do the psychotherapeutic bit now with you. Um, yes. How has he penetrated your soul so much? I think because the sorts of questions he was trying to address were questions that were very much around for me. I wrote an article in Reformed World 40 years ago, which was the journal of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. Peter Moss, in fact, was the one that, that, that got me to write the article. And I said there were four issues for me as a young Christian at that stage. One was, can you speak of God in a way that is meaningful to me? Mm -hmm. and secondly, can you find a way of worship that is meaningful to me? Thirdly, can you create a community of which I can feel a part? Mm. And fourthly, what is it to be a Christian? And I went off into political life and did a whole bunch of stuff which you're familiar with. And as I came back to think about these issues more fully in 2010 mm. and around, I found that those four questions still had not been answered and addressed. But the more I began to explore them here, and of course the fact that he was open to the psychological perspective, mm -hmm fascinated me and has given me stepping stones to take forward my own thinking and faith and conviction. Uh, so I don't feel as though my pilgrimage has come to some kind of brick wall or abandonment. Mm. On the contrary, it has opened doors to new depth and conviction. And for me, that's a welcome thing. Not that he has the answer to everything. Yeah, On yeah. the contrary. Yeah, of course. But he opens a door or a space or a window uh, that I find it helpful to walk through. And, and, and others may find that with him or with others. That's not what's important. What's important is for, for all of us, that pilgrimage, that 
engagement with the transcendent, with God, is something that is open to us, rather than what I fear is happening for many people, including young people, mm -hmm. that they are losing a sense of that and a sense of faith, and that is a tragedy. John, you're a very generous thinker, and I, I learned something from you, and you provoke me to think every time I meet you, and every time we talk, so thank you. Let's thank John. For what he's done for so, this is the book. <laughs> the launch of a new book by Ernest Davey. I hear myself say that. It's bizarre, isn't it? Uh, in 2021, Religious Experience, It's Nature, Validity, Forms and Problems. Any questions, comments from you? You're going to have to shout pretty loudly. Um, um, just put a hand up so I can see you. Do we allow people to take a mask off while they're asking Absolutely. questions? Yes, off please while you're asking the question? But you want to keep the mask on so that we don't know who it is that's asking the question. That's also fine. <laughs> Very quiet. Oh, oh, yeah, now it all comes all at once. Gentlemen here first. Go ahead. How can we use uh, uh, to encourage Davy's writings to make uh, the in church more attractive for young it, people? Yeah. To me, it sounds like he could be a real gateway to get people in. I think you're right. Uh, there's two elements to it. The first is that in, in this book, but in his other books as well, and recognising they were written a hundred years ago, <laughs> the, the other books, it's amazing, he it? speaks about how we have allowed language, particularly religious language, to be an obstruction to young people rather than a communication. They, they read these words, they hear these words, and instead of feeling, this speaks to my life, they say, oh, this is this kind of obscure religious lingo, it doesn't mean anything to me. And so he says, we've got to find a way of speaking in a language that is meaningful and communicates. I think if we simply take his book, it is the language of the 1950s. He wouldn't want us to simply take it and think that it was going to have an impact on people 60 years on without translating it into understandings of today. But I think the value of it is that it points us in that direction and says the spirit is a spirit who moves forward. We need to run to keep up with the spirit of God. And that means that if we're going to communicate meaningfully to people, we need to do it in a language that connects with them. And so I think that's, that's what he would be trying to say, uh, albeit in 1950s language. I mean, you read it, and, and one of the colleagues of mine that read it said, he talks about he and men all the time. I say, yeah, well, that's the 1950s, yeah, of, course. of course. I don't actually believe if he was writing it today, he would uh, be, in that sense, so backward and, and out of date. But it's because it was 60 years ago. So I think that's, to me, the message of it. Great question. Thank you very much. Yeah. Go ahead. And uh, there's this whole question, that's the previous uh, question said about young people in the church. And, I mean, let's not beat about the bush. Many of the churches are dying on the feet, yeah. and this is a fact that they did in the last generation. Uh, their, their sons, daughters, and their grandsons, granddaughters don't go to church. And I, I mean, I, I think there's, there's, just, there's certainly a lot of hypocrisy about churches and people not willing to admit that. Uh, I mean, the other thing is something that um, Harold Dean said, and in fact it was a year, uh, the time of Labour were like 1997, you remember that East Belfast office and Harold Dean was there, you were there though. And uh, somebody questioned, somebody questioned about uh, people going to, to these fundamentalist churches like um, up in North Belfast um, yep. and so forth. 
Uh, and he made a very good point. He says, yes, it's people with that sort of personality that want a certainty and don't want to have to think for themselves, go for that. Mm-hmm. He says, I wouldn't go for that. But it's, it's just people with a certain type of personality go right. for that. Right. And well, I think that's very true. There, there's two things I would say, Malcolm. Yeah. The first is, I, I, yes, perhaps it's to do a bit with people's personality, but also I think it's to do with the times. We, we live in a world in a, of huge anxiety at yes. the moment. And it's not unreasonable that people should be incredibly anxious. Yes. But when people are anxious, they try to find certainties about things they can't be certain about. Yes. And they, they look to people who say, this is the way it is, and I'm telling you. And they say, I, I desperately hope this person's right, and so they go to that. So I think it's, it's not just a question of personalities. It's also a question of the times uh, that, that we live in. But the other thing that you mentioned about the church and the churches, you know, <laughs> The key thing isn't the survival of the churches. It is the progress of the gospel. And the church has made some absolutely disastrous decisions in the past. For me, one of the most disastrous decisions was the decision to accept the connection with government under the Emperor Constantine. The church then became the establishment. And all sorts of dreadful things, frankly, happened from then on. And in our own part of the world, amongst Presbyterians, the church and the establishment became very close together. And I think it wasn't a helpful thing for the progress of the gospel. So it's not a question of whether the particular denomination survives or the church as a structure survives. To me, the question is, how can those who are faithful ensure that the gospel progresses and the church may or may not be the best vehicle at certain times and in certain communities and places? Sometimes the church can be an obstruction to the gospel or a very bad witness to the gospel. And, and, and therefore it has to change. But the key thing is, is the faith itself. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's what we must understand and go to. It's a hypothetical, but what do you think Ernest Davy would make of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland today? I, I think he would be deeply disenchanted. Uh, one of my father's closest friends was the Reverend Howard Crummer, mm-hmm. uh, who you will remember. They were very close friends all their lives. Mm. And Howard also died. My father died and, and Howard died. And I've stayed very close to particularly one of his sons, David Crummer. And David said to me, you know, in a sort of way, I'm, I'm glad my father isn't alive anymore uh, to see what has happened to the church to which he loved and to which he gave his life. I think there are terrible changes that have have taken place over the last number of years, not with every Presbyterian, not at all, but with the trajectory that the church has taken. And if I I may point out one particular issue, for example, people are very aware that decisions by uh, the DUP in particular to vote for Brexit have actually ended up getting the opposite result from the one that they wanted in terms of borders and so on. I think what has not been said publicly is the decision of the Presbyterian church to cut itself off from the Church of Scotland, which was the mother church, and the URC, which was the Presbyterian Church in in England, is a similar kind of cutting of oneself off from one's own roots and one's own relationships. And the consequences of that simply cannot be good. So there are all sorts of consequences of the way that things have been going recently, theologically, socially, and I think potentially politically, which I think he would have deeply regretted. I think he would have spoken about it probably in more courteous tones than maybe I do, uh, but I think he would have been distressed by what's happened. Over here, thank you. Thank you for that and for that talk. One of the issues which I think is of 
a question about uh, how we might uh, encourage enlightenment in theological education. It's very interesting you use the word enlightenment because that, of course, has connections with a certain historical period and set of understandings, the Enlightenment. One which was extremely important for Presbyterians because the Scottish Enlightenment in particular was hugely significant globally in all sorts of ways, not just philosophy and religion, but architecture, engineering, medicine and so on. I've come to the view in the last number of years that we actually need not just another reformation, which I think we do need, but actually another look at enlightenment because some of the ideas that develop from it, the excessive rationalization, for example, has, I think, run its course. And there's actually not just an opportunity, but a crying need for us to move forward in our thinking. I mentioned things like complexity science. One of the interesting things for me is looking at how we approach complexity theory and apply it to theology. I think if we can engage in that forward movement of thinking, rather than going back to old sterile arguments, like, well, you think that and I think that and so on, but rather understanding that there's something that goes beyond that. Now, the difficulty is that can be pretty frightening to some people, mm -hmm. and it will make some people become more fundamentalist. I think that's to some extent how you do the work, but that the work needs to be done, it seems to me, is absolutely critical. How do all of us have to play a part in that. It's not a question of leaving it to some theologians in theological colleges, because they have such an investment and such a risk that they'll end up at a heresy trial that it's actually difficult to see how they could take things forward. And that's why the Presbyterian notion of the priesthood of all believers is actually really important. Uh, we're, we're in a non-subscribing Presbyterian church, yeah. so I feel moved to ask this question. Uh, given that you're talking about science as a research programme and with the analogy there that theology could be a research programme as well, constantly updating, constantly responding, pursuing, never settled, yeah. never comfortable in certainty. How do you feel about creeds? How do you feel about the Westminster Confession of Faith? If you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's two things about it. First of all, anybody that reads it will see how absolutely firmly it is couched in the historical political context in which it was written. Mm. There's no, I mean, it's absolutely clear. There's no way anybody could write something like that now in that kind of way, because it was done in a particular context. The second thing is that it was done in the Jerusalem room in Westminster. Now, I know that room because we meet there for political meetings, but we meet there for faith meetings as well. And when I get together with colleagues from the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and I'm sitting in that chamber and I'm thinking, you know, this is where it was written. And this is the context in which it was written. And I understand how much the politics of the time affects everything that goes on around a place like Westminster. And I understand that the politics of the time affected the Westminster Confession of Faith too. So for me, the question is, what do I believe and how is my belief mm -hmm. being influenced and moving forward in a positive and constructive way? It doesn't seem to me creeds are something you, you, you write and leave in a box for 2,000 years. They are, in fact, something that expresses your faith and relationship with God. And that ought to be something that develops. But only at that time. In, indeed. And, 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 and for all of us, yeah. if we're thinking people at all, uh, we will speak about our faith differently now than we might have 20 years ago. 
So you could say that about all creeds, couldn't you? You could say yes. that about the Nicene Creed, there's a political context and history to every creed. Absolutely. Does that mean that you, you, know, you, you think of creeds as simply historical, geographically located documents, interesting to look at, uh, postcards from the past, really, but that's it? No. They're not thresholds for orthodoxy. Well, I, I don't think... They, they obviously are used as thresholds for orthodoxy. Yeah, but I'm, but for, I'm trying to pin you down. I know you are. <laughs> And that's perfectly fair. <laughs> it seems to me, as I said earlier on about David, yeah. that you don't take something like that and simply say, that's a postcard from the past. You say there is some profound truth in this. Mm. But the way it was understood then, and the way I understand exactly the same words now, is not necessarily the same. Yeah. And therefore you've got to translate it, as well as take it forward in the way of thinking. And, and, and therefore, to, to simply think, if I say these words now, 500 years after they were written, they mean the same thing. Well, they don't mean the same thing. Therefore, you have no alternative but to translate it into your understanding of today. Back to the question yeah. of how do we make sure young people have some sense of conviction about these matters? They'll not get it by simply repeating words. They will get it out of implementing it in their lives and in their relationships. Any others? <laughs> Over there, go ahead. Thank you. Do you think that uh, Christianity and Christians are being prosecuted more than one or any other time? Why is that happening? Do you think that Christians are being persecuted more around the world now than at any other time in the past? And if so, why, why do you believe that is the case? More than at any other time? I, I think they had a pretty tough time in the Roman Empire. <laughs> Um, but what happened subsequent to that, um, which may have seemed good at the time, that is to say them being identified with the empire itself and the empire becoming Christian and so on, is that they were no longer persecuted as much, but they became persecutors of other people. Uh, I, was, uh, I was doing a lecture uh, at the Angelicum uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is the, uh, the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, the, the rector of the university was there and he started asking me some questions. And I'm sure it wasn't his fault entirely, but I really did begin to feel that they'd got a heretic on their hands. And, and I was just glad the Spanish Inquisition wasn't around anymore, you know. Um, I, and you could feel that there were times when the church became the persecutors of others. It was the case for Presbyterians. They were persecuted. And, and at times they have actually been... Uh, the ones who were in charge and were not very sympathetic to others either. So, mm. is it? But there's no question that there are many parts of the world now where Christian brothers and sisters are having an absolutely horrendous time. There is no doubt about that. And I don't think that's going to go away. In fact, one of the problems about the rise of fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism, in the United States and the way it has informed politics in the United States and its foreign policy is that it has stimulated fundamentalism in other parts of the world amongst Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and others, and indeed Jews, it must be said, too. And, and, and that has provoked intolerance. So we have to be very careful that we ourselves do not behave in a fashion because we have influence, behave in a fashion which actually is intolerant of others, because if we do, we will make a more and more intolerant world and our brothers and sisters will then suffer because they will not be tolerated by people in other places. So the point you make is a very important one 
and it's an important one for all of us to hold to. And, and one of the things I have to say about, about the history of this particular congregation is that it is a history that has tended to be much more tolerant. And that's a tradition, it seems to me, that is extremely important within the Presbyterian wider family. Yes. Thank you. Come here a second. Did you all hear that? Um, about, a question about Antonio Fraser and one of her novels, uh, a, a debate in the 17th century about whether women had souls. Some of the clergy were debating that. Um, is that question still resonant today, really, for some people? Well, I think the, the point you're very elegantly making is that there is a resurgence of, um, of misogynism. Uh, and there's, I'm not sure that I totally understand it, but it does seem to be an almost inevitable element of fundamentalism, particularly religious fundamentalism, uh, that women are disregarded or disrespected or treated badly. I, I, as I say, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I completely understand why it is, but it, the evidence is absolutely clear. It, it, it happens again and again and again. And the more a community descends into fundamentalism, as I said earlier on, hmm. often in a context of existential threat that is perceived, the more you see these things, uh, yeah. th these things appearing. So yes, I mean, and we can look at it, and we can, you know, we can smile at people in the past and say, uh, you know, wasn't it strange they believed all of these strange things? But we have to be terribly careful uh, that we don't ourselves, in our own generation, fall into some similar kinds of traps, and sometimes even exactly the same traps. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, gentlemen here. Then I'll come to you. Yeah. Yes, I mean, he didn't devote himself particularly strongly to institutional ecumenism. Um, like systematic theology, I think he wasn't particularly interested or excited um, in that uh, in itself. And he, he writes about um, the different perspectives, uh, particularly in the changing vesture of the faith. Um, but in, in a sense, he, he wanted to get back beyond that. He, his closest friend, actually, was the, the, the Jewish rabbi here in Belfast, Rabbi Schachter. And they would meet very frequently um, to study the Hebrew scriptures, um, because both of them were, were, were very adept at, at languages, including Hebrew in particular, uh, but also Greek, because he was a New Testament scholar. So he was much more interested in, in that deepening of the understanding mm. um, than he was in institutional ecumenical uh, relations and he doesn't say that much uh, about that but he was very highly regarded and respected and, and there was no sense amongst people in the Catholic community or in other communities like the Jewish community and so on that he was other than open to engagement with them and, and there are a lot of very interesting and positive 
the comments about him, for example, sadly, when, when he passed away, quite a, I saw quite a number of letters from, from people in the leaderships of the various churches, uh, and indeed churches outside of Ireland completely, uh, because of the regard in which he was held. But no, he didn't say a great deal about institutional ecumenism. Thank you very much. Mark. Let me take the last bit of the question first, the question of fundamentalism. For me, fundamentalism is not a set of beliefs. It's a way of thinking about things. People may have quite conservative beliefs or quite liberal beliefs, and either could end up being fundamentalists. I know lots of liberal fundamentalists. I know lots of people who are fundamentalist atheists. You get fundamentalism in all sorts of contexts. It's a way of thinking which is black and white, which says, I know, you don't. You're wrong. I'm right. This is the solution to everything. I know it. It's, it's a whole way of thinking about things rather than a set of views. So there's absolutely no problem about people having different perspectives and holding in the relationship between them, holding those different perspectives. One of the things that's really important for liberally minded people is to value what conservatives bring to the table. Mm. Because they hold certain things that are different, but are really important to not be lost. And, and vice versa. I have a very old friend, Ed Shapiro, who's been a psychoanalyst for many years. And I, he wrote a book recently called Find, Finding a Place to Stand. And I asked him about this book. I said, what have you learned in all of these years of work and so on? What's the thing that is most important? And he said, oh, it's very simple, John. What I've learned that is really important is when there is someone with whom I disagree, I have to ask myself the question, what are they right about? Mm. Not what are they wrong about, that's easy, I can write pages on that. But the question is, what are they right about? And whether that person is a liberal or a conservative, or even someone outside the Christian faith, totally. Mm -hmm. What is it that they have grasped that I need to learn from and can learn from? And being open to that. So to me, that's, that's the issue really. It's, it's how you hold these things rather than the beliefs themselves. And of course, Jesus, when his disciples came and said, we need to tell these guys to stop healing because they're doing it in your name and they're not our tribe at all. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the kind of person I am. That's not what I'm about. Mm -hmm. If these people are doing good things and they're doing it in the same way and the same name, then, then there, there are people too. And I think that's a very important part of it. The first part of Mark's question had to do with the issues that he might help us with today. I mean, obviously the issues of today are not the issues of his day in many cases. Um, so you, you might have to imagine your way to an answer to this question. How might he help us with some of the defining issues of our day? I, I think one of the things is understanding that when he talks about many of the things he talks about in terms of religious experience, mm. he's talking about something that is common 
to all people of faith and even people outside of faith. For example, yeah. Yeah. when you look up at the mountains, look up at the Alps, and you get a feeling inside yourself, an appreciation. If you're not a faith person at all, you'll still get that feeling, but you will attribute different explanations and different meanings to it. But if you're a person of faith, whatever faith, you look at the mountains, you feel a sense of awe, and you think of it in terms of the meaning of your faith. One of the problems about things like doctrines, structures, and rituals and liturgies is those are the things we disagree about. Those are the things we differ on and argue about endlessly. To me, that's one of the reasons for the failure of the ecumenical movement. They focused on that. What he talks about in this book is the thing that is common to all humanity. One of the things that makes us human beings. And for me, the thing to do is for us, with our different perspectives within the Presbyterian family, and beyond it is to recognize those essential components of being a human being and our relationship with the transcendent, with God, that those experiential bits that are part of being a human being. And don't lose that when we're talking about the different perspectives that we have and the different explanations and the different practices that we have. It's that respect and holding on to the experience which is common to all of us. But when you have a feeling somebody might describe it as a religious feeling someone else might say it's a spiritual feeling someone else might say it's a, an aesthetic response mm -hmm. or just a personal response to a mountain or music or something mm -hmm. is a religious experience a feeling plus a religious label a kind of language that i impose upon my feelings so if i happen to be a christian it's a christian religious experience i'm describing if i'm of another faith i use other language to describe the same feeling um, is, is, that what, is that what Davy means? Or is there something, I mean, let, let's go to John Calvin on religious experiences instead of um, something substantial in a religious experience, which is an encounter with God that has truth um, involved in it, is a pathway to knowledge. There is knowledge involved. It's not just a feeling with cultural language superimposed on it. It's a disruption. Um, where there is an inbreaking of God into my experience of the world. He's not there, is he? He's with Hegel, he's not with Calvin, right? You, you mentioned his evangelical background. Yeah. And one of the things I think that he would identify is that it is about a relationship with God. That's fundamentally what it's about. And, and, when, mm. and, and when evangelists are speaking about it, they talk about that question of relationship with God. Sometimes they talk about it in terms of relationship with Christ mm -hmm. more than God. But, but that's what it's about. Now, here's what he says. What is universal religious experience? It consists of such experiences as are involved in the process of perceiving and maintaining ultimate relationships. The most ultimate, the most real, the most compelling form in which we conceive our relationships with each other, with the universe in which we live, and with God. It is, it, and, and if somebody is non-religious, it's simply a question of inverting it. What is the thing that is the way of engaging with the world for them? And for some people it's football, and for some people it's other things. But for those of faith, that is the ultimate guiding relationship of their lives. 
And I think that's what he focuses on. More than belief, more than structures, more than even the church. It is that relationship with God that is for him the lodestone. We're nearly out of time. I could talk all evening. I'm sorry I've kept you all too long. John, did you want to have a word? Was that you moving there? Oh, bless you. You don't need to see us, John, honestly. And, and for me, and I think clearly from him, for him in his writings, the content is the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed. Not all the other explanations that were given subsequently, but the gospel that he proclaimed, not just in what he said, but in how he lived, and the sacrificial way, ultimately, in which he lived. So the fact that you say that religious experience is something that is common to all humanity doesn't mean that every explanation or understanding that everybody, anybody gives is an equivalent of each other or that they're all kind of the same. What is the same is this insistent striving in human beings to engage with what, what we call God, that which is transcendent beyond us and all the ways that you were referring to earlier on. And people give different explanations to it. It doesn't mean that any one explanation is as good as any other. The reality is the explanation you give is probably going to be related as much as anything to the culture in which you grew up than, than anything else. But do I believe, does he clearly believe that there is something essentially special, different uh, and, and best about Jesus and the gospel that he proclaimed, the way he lived it and the opportunity he gave us to engage through him to God, yes, it is different and special. And the, the challenge for all of us, one might even say the responsibility for all of us, and that was perhaps an essential component of the Reformation, the insistence that all of us should have the scriptures to read in our own language, not because we would then be told what to think about it, but rather that it would enable us to find a way closer to God in our generation and in each succeeding generation. So that gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm. the way he lived, how he related, uh, and, and the, the message he gave us. That is something very special and sadly being forgotten, lost, overlooked by many people, especially young people, 
because the way it has been practiced and the language it has been used and the way it has been lived out does not have for them the kind of conviction that is essential to any real belief. I don't agree with you. I, that, that is not my reading of J. Ernest Davy. I'll, I'll, just, I'll yes. just say this. That is not my reading of J. Ernest Davy. He's a universalist. Um, he believes that the texts in which a gospel is communicated are fragile, not fixed, uh, they're contextual. Um, this is the story that works for him. It's the story that makes sense of that religious impulse for him, the Jesus story. But he also says that other faiths around the world are equal paths to that same religious enlightenment and truth. He believes that there is a substantial experience, John, I think, but it's shared. And that, I keep going back to John Barclay on this. And I keep sounding like a prosecutor. I don't mean to sound like a prosecutor. But this is not the Westminster Confession of no. Faith. It is certainly not the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if, if those who were trying to prosecute him had done a better job or hired me, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we would have convicted him. But the question, <laughs> but even the, though even though I'm not disagreeing with them, but I'm just saying, you but, know, I'm just I'm just saying. But I, the question of Christian I, faith, I think you may be. I think there's a risk you might be imposing what you're hoping, Ernest Davy might say, or, or what he actually says. John. <laughs> we were hoping to get a walk out tonight, John. <laughs> Yeah. Christian apologetics, as I read it. It's in some ways an attempt to take the categories of, of uh, psychology and try to establish some kind of coherence between that and the content of, of, of Christian faith. So, I, as I read the book, I think you have to read this book as an exercise of Christian apologetics. Um, but I still, yeah. I, I think, well, I think the way he's laid out the book is exactly like that, isn't it? Yes. He, he does it through nature, validity, forms, problems, which is exactly how you'd approach an apologetic kind of question. But I, I think I, the way I read this book, sorry, John, I'm just going to give you my view anyway. The way I read this book is the final chapter in the story of Ernest Davy. He starts off, you know, he'd been to Heidelberg, he's he'd met all these German thinkers and theologians. He had discovered Schleiermacher, he had discovered Hegel. Uh, he was on a path. A certain path. It was certainly not the Westminster Confessions path. It certainly wasn't the Reformed Calvinist path. It was a, a continental European philosophical path. And, and, and that process thought that he got from Hegel goes through all of these books, including the changing vesture of the faith and even his reading of, of, of church history. And it results in this, which is really where Hegel starts, which is an attempt to do phenomenology, to explain experience to explain consciousness and ultimately for Hegel and I think they come to the same point the difference between God and consciousness is completely I think you need to evaporate I think you need to be careful all right because <laughs> what is clear from what he does in his life and in his work is not to come to a conclusion hmm. but to embark on a path hmm. one might call it a pilgrimage or otherwise sure but a path sure. yeah when he completes this work 60 years ago, he completes it because he himself has come to the end of his life. 
Yeah. Not because the journey has come to an end. And as I tried to point out, there are aspects of our own thinking, in terms of complexity, for example, that have moved on very considerably mm. in the last 50 mm. years. So the issue is not, do we take this and believe it? But rather, do we take the trajectory and follow it out? Take the responsibility for understanding where he came to and where we go from there. Yeah. Because much has happened in the intervening period of time. So I don't recommend that people read the book in order to say, ah, That's this answer. is the truth. No, no. But rather to say, wait, this opens a door, it opens a window, it opens an opportunity to take my own thinking forward rather than argue about beliefs and doctrines from, from the past. Yeah, yeah. And I if we do that, mm. then it will generate disagreement. It will generate debate. Because, of course, we won't all see things from the same perspective, nor should we. Uh, the disciples themselves argued amongst themselves about what it meant. And Jesus said, you really haven't got it. Mm. You really got, not got the message. So, so for, for me, if this provokes debate that does not create division and mm. difficulty, but diversity and progress, then I think that I, and I rather suspect, though I don't know, that he mm. would feel that was a worthwhile thing to do. Shall we thank John Allardyce, Neil Allardyce, for this wonderful talk. Thank you very much. Brilliant as ever. Fantastic. And can we say thank you to this guy here too? Really, thank you very much. I enjoy that. Now, the, all of that was by way of saying, buy the book. <laughs> and John will sign a copy and you will have a religious experience <laughs> as he signs your copy of the book. So do not leave here without buying a copy of this terrific book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Des. Thank you, Matt, who's now going to play us out. Thank you. <laughs>